Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Water is so important to all of us. We want pure, clean water to drink and bathe in, and we enjoy swimming and playing in water. Some people like to go boating or kayaking, and that too requires a body of water, preferably one that is clean and pleasant. In this program, we're going to talk about water from the point of view of an environmental scientist, whose job it is to keep the aquatic ecosystem in Austin healthy and thriving. Part of that is protecting native plants and creatures and keeping out invasive plants and creatures. My guest is Dr. Brent Bellinger, who's a senior environmental scientist in the Watershed Protection Department for the city of Austin. I asked him to tell us what he does on an average day. Uh, day to day is probably a mix, you know, depending on the season, 70, 30, 60, 40, office and field work. Um, the field work obviously is what um, you know people love to see and, mm -hmm. and are most interested in. It's going out um, in one of our in our boat to collect water samples, uh, to do invertebrate bug sampling, um, going out with our partners at Texas Parks and Wildlife Department to do uh, fish surveys. Uh, we go out and evaluate habitat, um, aquatic vegetation. So I mean, really, um, I have a chance to sample the, um, the aquatic ecosystem top to bottom, uh, which is great. And then that 60 to 70% of the other time is looking at the data that we've collected. Mm. Um, the Watershed Protection Department has a really long, rich history of ecological monitoring of our reservoirs. And so um, I've been fortunate for the past five years to have uh, the leeway to dig into um, a lot of that historic data to look at where our reservoirs have been and kind of trying to predict where they might be going. And and what is the uh, sort of goal of everything you do? What uh, the, the what's goal, your mission? Yeah, uh, the, uh, the goal is to provide uh, the highest quality resource to the citizens of Austin um, and to the region, Central Texas region, as possible. Um, the Colorado River, the Highland Lakes are a tremendous uh, resource and asset beyond just being flood control and drinking water supply. Um, they are a tremendous recreational opportunity for people to interact with on the water directly or just along the hike and bike trails and to maximize kind of those um, ecosystem services that the reservoirs provide to the citizens um, of, of the area and region, uh, you need to have a high quality resource. And so we're trying to make sure that the ecological integrity is as high as possible for the people. Many people have heard the term invasives uh, in relation to plants, but the term also applies to wildlife, aquatic creatures, and, and more. Can you give us an overall definition of invasives? Uh, sure. Um, it can apply to any organism from an algae all the way up to, you know, birds, uh, other large animals. And it's pretty much just something that grows and thrives uh, in a new environment to the detriment um, of the ecosystem uh, that it is now residing in. Okay. And how do invasives move from one area to another? How do they end up where, you know, in a new, in a new place? Sure. Um, 
the, the usage of invasives at this point, it, it's, it's kind of a uh, scale-dependent um, perception. Um, if you look at, for example, like the retreat of the glaciers, um, and you have these new environments that are created, the Great Lakes, and these new drainage base, basins, and organisms are migrating um, into those uh, new environments from the south moving north, uh, those technically could probably be considered invasives. But it's a slow, gradual process, and organisms are allowed to kind of compete and uh, grow together, in a sense. Uh, what we have now... Um, is through human-mediated movement, uh, you know, uh, transatlantic, transpacific trade, um, you know, up and down between the continents, and organisms are introduced at a rapid pace, um, and they don't have a chance to come to an equilibrium. Um, you have, you know, otherwise established ecosystems that are now being exposed to something new. So most in invasive species that we talk about, uh, they've gotten to that place through human-mediated means. But, like, what's an example of that? Give me a couple of examples of how would a, how would a plant from some other continent get here? Uh, in terms of plants, uh, typically um, that was for, um, you know, People wanted something pretty in their gardens. Uh, they wanted uh, something from home that they recognized. So people brought birds and plants and other animals uh, that they were familiar with, you know, from Europe as they're moving over to the Americas. Or if it was something for food, you want to bring um, wild hogs, you want to bring rabbits, uh, these other things. And, and you bring them into the environment and, and introduce those for one um, purpose. Um, and then they ended up you know, getting free and doing many other things instead. So, and that's something that's still happening. I mean, uh, it's not just something that happened historically, but even today, people are bringing in new plants and animals and yeah, yeah. bugs. And at, at this point, we're much more conscientious about purposeful introductions. Um, so, what you get is kind of inadvertent um, or, pa or introductions. Um, for example, like uh, organism like a zebra mussel. Um, its larvae are microscopic and cannot be seen. It travels from Eurasia in the ballast waters of ships, mm -hmm. gets released into the Great Lakes, and now you have this invasion. You know, not that anyone was trying to do that, uh, for example. And then, you know, the current ability for organisms like that to spread is, you know, kind of the same mechanism, smaller vessels, you know, fishing boats, mm -hmm. um, pontoon boats, etc., they grow on the hulls or on the trailers or in the bilge water. People move, you know, they want to recreate one basin to the next, and then they inadvertently um, introduce it. So it, it is still an active process, but it's one that's probably not as rapid as it has been because right. of the increased awareness. Right. So, so that's something then that that I guess boat owners need to be aware of, that they need to check their boats? Or? Very much so, yes. It's a, it's a very active um, messaging campaign, for example, uh, across um, the United States to clean, dry, drain, and dry your boats because uh, there's multiple um, organisms that could potentially reside mm -hmm. on your boats, on your trailers, or in your uh, bilges, uh, plants, um, mollusks, algae, other things that, yeah. again, they're just... The receiving waters aren't used to them, and they don't know how to deal with them. 
Uh, but there's other things if uh, across the Great Lakes, for example, firewood, um, they try to prevent the spread of different pests. Um, and so firewood has to be purchased, you know, regionally. So you're not spreading um, oh, really? different different organisms. So, the, you know, there's, there's multiple examples yeah. of people just kind of being aware of where they're getting, um, you know, their plants, their wood, their water from. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here today with Brent Bellinger, who is the senior environmental scientist in the Watershed Department, Protection Department in Austin. Uh, and we're talking about invasives. And you were just saying that uh, one of the things that uh, people need to be aware of is, is firewood. So, I mean, that's not something, for example, I would never have thought about that. How, how do you spread that message so that it's widely available? Uh, you know, a lot of times it's it's kind of regionally specific, so that's something that's more common, um, you know, up in the Great Lakes region. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this, this state natural resource departments typically get that messaging out, and they will regulate, um, you know, who's coming into their parks, or they'll check and ask, you know, where did you get this wood from? Uh-huh. Um, and same okay. with, with the boats. Texas um, is getting more proactive in that approach, but for example, in in Montana and some of the western states, uh, they have checkpoints on the roads, and they will inspect every single boat that's yeah. passing through to make sure that they're, you know, clean of of any invaders. Good to know. So uh, I understand that invasives, whether plants or animals, can have several different negative effects on the environment. Um, and uh, in looking at your website, I see that you have listed some of these. So I wanted to go through each of these with you. Um, one, the first being um, one effect is that invasives reduce the natural biodiversity of an area. Um, explain what that is and, and how does that happen? Sure. Um, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, organisms have had a chance to develop an ecosystem through countless interactions and, you know, coming to, you know, what is a generally uneasy equilibria, but uh Everyone kind of knows how to play with each other, more or less. Um, what happens when you get an invasive that has no natural predators, no natural checks and balances, is that it throws everything kind of out of whack for a period of time. Um, a, a stat that I found online yesterday of the uh, 1,300 you know recognized endangered species, um, 400 of those are primarily the result of invasive species moving into their um, wow. you know, environment. Right. So they, the, this effect, it's, it's a very large, dramatic, quick um, effect. And usually what that is is um, a, a competitive advantage or disadvantage, depending on which way you're looking at it. The invasive species comes in because it has, for example, no natural predators. It is able to consume the same resources has other conspecifics at a much higher rate. Uh, it will typically grow larger, faster, reproduce more quickly, um, you know, overwhelm the carrying capacity um, of an ecosystem and other things that are used to growing more slowly, more deliberately, uh, and having these kind of other struggles for resources now are left at a complete disadvantage and drop out of the ecosystem. So you start to lose Right. Uh, those endemic species. So, what's? Can you give me a like a specific example of that, of a plant or a insect or something that that was uh, that is being displaced by something else? 
uh, something oh something being displaced well or or, or affected in sure. this way where where something that was natural here is being harmed by something that was brought in you know zebra mussels are implicated in reducing um, the abundances and populations of native mussels you know, so native mussels provide you know uh, numerous services to an environment, the zebra mussels will start to grow on those, affect their ability to feed and reproduce, and those organisms then are, are lost from, from those systems. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Sawa Khan, and I'm here today with Brent Bellinger, Senior Environmental Scientist for the Watershed Protection Department in Austin, and we're talking about the effects of invasives on our environment, but right now it's time for a break. We're back now. I'm Salwa Khan. You're listening to Mothering Earth, and I'm here today with Brent Bellinger, Senior Environmental Scientist for the Watershed Protection Department in Austin. We're talking about invasives and how they affect, uh, how they harm our ecosystems and the environment. So uh, another way in which invasives uh, can affect an area is that they interfere with, interfere with ecosystem functions like fire, nutrient flow, and flooding. Can you talk about that? And are there any specific examples you can point to? Sure. Um, in terms of nutrient flow, I mean, we'll stick with, you know, the the most recent invader that we have to central Texas, the zebra mussel. Uh, these are very effective filter feeders. And so in a lake ecosystem where you have uh, algae and nutrients in the water column supporting uh, this open water food web, the zebra mussels uh, filtering, you know, a gallon of water a day, you know, so when you say filtering, what does that mean? Uh, the they're way that they're feeding, it. they're yes, they're they're okay. pulling uh, all the microscopic organisms, bacteria, and algae out of the water column for their you know to feed themselves, right. and that leaves uh, no food available for consumers in the water column. So they're starved out. You get a change in the uh, open water food web, and the other detrimental thing because they're relocating all those nutrients that are otherwise floating in the water to the bottom sediments, uh, releasing it as feces and pseudo-feces, you get an accumulation of organic matter. You're basically fertilizing your sediment surface. And with increased light penetration down to the sediments, because they've made the water clear, and this really rich um, organic matter that they're depositing on the sediments, um, there has now uh, been observed these large algae blooms um, on the bottoms of lakes. And this past summer, we saw some of this in Ladybird Lake. Uh, the visibility increased uh, two, three, four times, um, and there was tremendous mats of algae, filamentous algae, fouling up the entire bottom. So for nutrient flow now, instead of these things being open water, it's all yeah. now down on the bottom. Right. Yeah. Uh, for flooding, um, if you get dense mats of aquatic vegetation, uh, previously we've had issues with hydrilla in Lake Austin. In other parts of Texas, they have uh, water hyacinth. Um, they clog up basically your waterway. And as you get these large pulses of water trying to move through, they're slowing it down to a degree that everything gets backed up behind it. And then you start getting flooding where you wouldn't otherwise. Okay. So, but this is interesting. I mean, I just find this interesting that, so you're saying the the water gets clearer 
which is nice, isn't it? It's a perceived <laughs> nice. Um, but it's not a good thing. It's too much of a good thing. Yeah. Yep. While they're cleaning that water, um, again, the, the, the food web, the organisms that are reliant on all those nutrients in the open water are now going to be starved out. So you get a change in your food web. So if, you're, if your target is to have these open water fish species, they're going to be struggling uh, to feed. You're going to have uh, the algae that's now thriving on the bottom, uh, washing up on your beaches, on your um, shorelines, decomposing, uh, you know, creating rancid smells. Uh, it's been linked yeah. to avian botulism around the Great Lakes, uh, massive bird deaths. Uh, and then the mussels themselves growing in the shorelines or their shells washing up on your beaches and shorelines mm-hmm. will cut your feet. So you see nice water, but you can't actually <sighs> interact and enjoy it because yeah. of these other side effects. So another effect that invasives have is that they reduce the value of streams, lakes, and reservoirs for recreation, wildlife, and public water supply. Are there any uh, specific examples of this um, that you can talk about? Zero mussels have been recognized as one of the top 10 most detrimental invasive species in the world. Um, because of their ability to follow beaches and make it so you can't walk along, right. you know, your waterfront. Uh, in terms of public water supply, Austin is now all too familiar with what can happen when zebra mussels uh, grow, uh, thrive, and die inside of a water intake pipe. Uh, that that decomposition uh, was able to follow the water for you know, half the city. Um, their growth, their ability to grow on hard surfaces. Um, can damage infrastructure, um, results in uh, tremendous additional maintenance costs um, to keep uh, dams and pipes uh, clear um, of their uh, growth and fouling. Uh, so those are things that we're, that we're dealing with now in, in Austin uh, just because of these couple of you know, right. seemingly um, small and significant invaders. Um, and they've only been, in, been here for about a year. You know, the Great Lakes, they've been in that system um, causing these types of uh, calamities for over 30 years now. So are there any uh, situations where you have an invasive and then um, at some point over the years they die out or they get, I don't know, some other invasive comes in and kills them off? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Are there any, you know... Uh, sure. Good uh, stories like that. <laughs> uh, you know, there's again, it's it's kind of a perspective of time. You know, we see these things happening sure. on a very short time scale. Um, some of the invaders, they just kind of keep doing their thing. You know, everything from rabbits to wild hogs, the cane toad. There just doesn't seem to be an end in sight. Uh, some organisms, you know, maybe they come to an uneasy equilibrium. With their environment you know they finally find a limiting resource and they get kind of put in check um, in a very few cases for example like with hydrilla um, we uh, use as a management tool um, another non-native invasive species grass carp but they were modified to make them um, uh, sterile, so they were they were made triploid, so they're sterile, can't reproduce, and then introduced to the system to feed on the hydrilla. That's not a perfect way to manage, 
Um, another example is. Um, I'm sorry. Going back to this one. Sure. So this was another grass, you say, or or what was it? Uh, they're called trip. They're called grass carp. Carp. Okay. Yes, but sorry. it's so there's a, a number of varieties of Asian carp. The, the grass carp, they feed on aquatic plants, and they yeah. were one that that was brought over for aquatic plant management. Okay. Now, when they were able to reproduce, they ended up causing issues because they weren't native here. They were able to figure out how to genetically modify them to make them sterile, so they are used as an imperfect management technique, uh, but they are effective, mm. which makes them, yeah. when you have no other options, uh, a great thing to use. Um, another one that's used uh, throughout Texas, um, there's a wasp that um, feeds on and, and grows specifically on a rundo, so the giant cane, which can overwhelm uh, kind of shorelines and riparian zones along waterways um, that wasp has been introduced and has you know slowly been kind of reducing the uh, vitality of of the giant cane. Huh. Again, not a perfect system. Yeah, you'd rather not introduce Something another new. non-native to control non-native. Um, and you know, while you might look at it like, oh, it looks like it's not having any collateral effect. You know we can't always measure everything that's happening in the environment. Right. So we don't know if somewhere down the line these sure. wasps may turn out to be not such a great idea. Right. But, <laughs> we, but we, do what we, we do what we can to right. you know, control what is the worst, worst case scenario. Right. So, uh, and then another effect, uh, which I think we've kind of talked about, is the recreational value, basically, of lands and areas and lakes and such. Um, any other examples of that? Yeah, I mean, the, um, the giant cane, I mean, uh, because of their density and their growth, you know, they actually create kind of a disconnect, you know, with the water. You know, you can no longer see, you know, mm -hmm. your water if you're walking along a trail or you may not be able to access areas because of its dense growth. They grow, you know, 14 feet high and, you know, about as thick as, as possible and, you know, yeah. are not fun to walk through either. Right. Um, you know, other, you know, other organism like the kudzu, um, you know, just kind of overwhelming an area, you kind of lose, you know, the aesthetics of seeing, you know, the, the diversity of plants right. out there. And then you start losing your, your wildlife, your birds and, you know, other, other organisms that you might be out, you know, trying to do, you know, if you're a bird watcher. Right. Or if you're trying to collect butterflies or something. What is what are some of the specific things that people in our area should be aware of and watching out for in terms of uh, ways they can prevent invasives? For the most part, you know, I would recommend that if you start to see um, a non-native invasive species popping up in your yard, you know, try to remove it, physically remove it, uh, try to try to control it. Um, plant native species. One of the ways to minimize invasions is by having a healthy, diverse ecosystem. Uh, typically, an invasive species becomes more successful uh, when an area is disturbed. Um, you know, so like in a parkland uh, where you've done mowing and you've removed the native vegetation and now you've created kind of this open bare land or maybe it's just lawn, this is prime area for an invasive species to come in. Mm. Um, you know, it's not always the case, but you know, some of the research has shown that if you have a more robust, diverse community, 
that you can slow down or fend off you know, many invasive species. Um, so there's a lot of beautiful native wildflowers, shrubs, trees, bushes in Texas. Uh, those should be your first choice when you go to the garden center. Right. Uh, but now, why why is it that? Because I know for a fact that some of these some of the species that are listed as invasive uh, are sold in nurseries. Yeah. With some of them, um, again, in this, there are some of the plants that have also been modified to make them sterile, so they don't produce uh, a seed um, that allows them to spread. Uh, so there are some examples of those plants being out there. Um, you know, the the buyer could probably ask and determine what is the uh, vitality and potential, you know, for an organism to spread. Uh, because it's not just your yard. If you're if you're planting something not native or invasive, it's possible that your neighbor could yeah. then start to get this. So, you know, bamboo grows right. and spreads pretty quickly, and you know right. maybe not everyone wants bamboo in their yards. Uh, so it, it's it's a lot of uh, kind of personal responsibility and awareness. You know, not just what you're purchasing, but you know, also with for like the boat owners. Um, you know, taking care of your boat, making sure everything's drained, your drain plug is pulled, things are washed off, there's no plants hanging right. off of your boat trailers. It, it comes down to personal responsibility that you're not transporting willfully or otherwise these potential species. So please do what you can to stop the spread of invasive species, whether you are a boater, a gardener, or just someone who enjoys nature and the outdoors. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth. <laughs> <laughs>